Hello, and welcome to this second bonus episode of Food Systems. This is another departure from our regular interviews as we are uploading the full audio of the latest FFA Live event, which took place on October 26, 2020. The theme of this conference was rewarding sustainability in the food system. This is the second of three recordings featuring the first panel discussion on sustainable business models paying for the transition. So we have joining us remotely, we have Eduardo Coco, who is the director of iForm Organics Europe. Joining me here in the studio, we have Ben O'Brien, director from Europe of Beef and Lamb New Zealand, and also Baz Ruter, global head of sustainability at Rabobank. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me. Um, Ben, let me start with you. The question for this panel is sustainable business models and paying for the transition. Give me your opening thoughts and your opening comments to set out the rest of our debate. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here today, and I'd like to thank the organisers for this opportunity to address you this afternoon, to give you a perspective from New Zealand on how we go about the business of sustainable food production. We've just heard from the chairman that the market signals in the food chain are broken and must be fixed. I agree, but perhaps rather than being completely broken, maybe they're just being a little distorted. For the past four years, I've been observing European agriculture and involved in discussions and debates on the regulatory and trade environment, talking to my European counterparts about their farm businesses and the impact that consumers, society, and government have on them. When I came here four years ago, I was struck by what was, to me, a different agricultural policy environment, characterised by special pleading and intense lobbying, focusing on the size of a subsidy budget, who should get what from it, and under what conditions. As you are no doubt aware, New Zealand abolished all its farm subsidies in the mid-1980s. We are by no means unique, of course, a significant number of other countries have few or no subsidies. So in New Zealand there are no single palm or direct payments, no eco payments or subsidies for fertiliser, farm equipment or animal welfare. Farm businesses are treated like any others and are expected to bear the full costs of their operations themselves. On top of that, industries have to pay for government services such as market access, traceability and post-border biosecurity. You can be sure, though, that under a user-pays regime, industry is well motivated to ensure these activities operate efficiently and are accountable. So with no subsidies, there is less lobbying and strong, clear market signals. It means farmers focus on their businesses rather than completing forms for government payments or modifying their businesses to be eligible for government funding. So that's the context in which we operate. So how does New Zealand agriculture approach the, use of, approach the issue of sustainability? Well, first of all, there's the law. The Resource Management Act prohibits impacts on natural resources and sets out a management enforcement regime. Everyone has to comply with the law at their own cost. It's effects-based, that is to say, it prohibits detrimental effects on the environment rather than prescribing prohibited or permitted actions. So an example would be that there is no national or even regional limit on fertiliser application, but there are local limits on nutrient levels and waterways. This places the broader responsibility for protecting the environment on the land users, 
but allows them freedom of action in how they go about avoiding nutrient loss to waterways. Climate change law includes an emissions trading scheme which puts a price on carbon and the recent Zero Carbon Act designed to meet our obligations under the Paris Agreement with the national objective of being carbon neutral by 2050. The agricultural sector has pledged to achieve its targets through a program entitled He Waka Ekenoa. Roughly translated, that means we're all in the same canoe or we're all on the same journey together. The result will be a nationwide farm level reporting and pricing of emissions. The sheep and beef sector, for its part, has already reduced emissions by over 30% since 1990, and we have recently completed a study of vegetative sequestration on our farms, which puts above-ground carbon storage at 90% of emissions on an annual basis. On the freshwater side, what are we doing? Well, at the highest level, the quality of fresh water must be maintained or improved. On-farm, it means a mandatory freshwater module must be incorporated into farm plans. Farm plans started out as management tools developed and promoted by organisations such as the one I work for, to help farmers identify environmental risks on their farms and develop plans to manage them. Local authorities have since adopted them within their regulatory requirements. I've mentioned some of the latest regulatory initiatives, but alongside these are the commercial imperatives. Meat exporting companies have long had requirements placed on them by their customers, most notably the supermarket chains that apply very strict specifications for the products they purchase. They have no difficulty in exerting their considerable market power to ensure high standards are met. As a result, processors and exporters in New Zealand have always had very strict conditions of supply. The compliance, verification, order requirements are ever increasing and are now incorporated into a national farm assurance program, the NZFAP. Finally, the NZFAP provides a quality and compliance framework for the Taste Pure Nature promotional program that's being rolled out in selected global markets in support of company marketing programs. There, in a nutshell, is an idea of how New Zealand is dealing with the issue of sustainability. It's an alignment of policy, regulation, technology and education, market signals and commercial disciplines. Farmers and processors are strongly incentivised in their businesses to provide a product that meets the highest of sustainability standards to a global market. I'd like to think, too, that it's not just the law and profits that motivate our farmers to become more sustainable, but also a strong inner desire to make the world a better place for future generations. A motivation I'm sure they share with their colleagues here in Europe. I hope that this brief snapshot is helpful. Namihi mo to aro. Thank you very much. Um, now, just a reminder again, before we go to our next speaker for this panel, that you have a question that you can answer on Mentimeter, which is who should pay for the implementation of greater sustainability in the food system? We'll come and see the results of that after we've heard the opening statements from each of our three speakers. And our second speaker is Eduardo Cuoco. Eduardo, let me give the floor to you for your opening thoughts. 
Thank you, Jennifer, and uh, welcome to everybody who is connected and watching us. I'm Eduardo Cuoco, the director of Organics Europe, and uh, I'm very uh, glad uh, for being here with you. So I, I would like to thank the ELO for inviting me. But let's frame um, a bit the discussion from uh, an organic point of view. We do believe that uh, the agroindustrial intensification, the, the industrial agriculture model that we are, have now is generating a vicious circle. And this intensification is giving as a result a threat to productivity, and then it requires further intensification and new industrial solution. Indeed, this system has um, succeeded to provide a large quantity of food products for the international market. However, this system also produced a large number of negative effects on the environment, on the socioeconomic, as well as on health and well-being of our community. So, um, we believe that just diminishing, for example, chemical input in a, in a system that doesn't work yet could yet reduce some uh, negative effect, but will not be sufficient to provide a long-term solution in a very comprehensive manner. So that's why we believe that it's uh, crucial and fundamental to call for a, a change of the agricultural system, a model that goes into a virtuous circle where inputs are minimized, soil preserved, organic matter is increased, diversification brings together livestock crops, and we also increase biodiversity. We believe that such a transition will bring together and will be stronger and, and will bring uh, a stable output, reducing the need for um, further industrialization solution. So we, we are called today to discuss about uh, pricing and how we can make, um, who is going to pay for this transition. Well, I think when it goes to cost for the transition, we need to think about it in a very holistically way. On one hand, we need policy, who will help farmers to create new business model for rewarding of the public goods that they deliver to society. For example, what we do, um, what organic farmers do. On the other hand, we need um, that the enlargement for sustainable organic products is, uh, is on the market. So we need to enlarge the market and we need to guarantee in the meantime that all farmers get a fair and stable price for their production. I mean, despite the COVID-19 crisis, every year for the last 10 years, in average 325,000 full-time equivalent jobs were disappearing in the agriculture and food sector in Europe every year. Almost 4 million farmers lost their farm in the last 10 years. So we do believe that tax, um, taxpayer money should really be used to reward those farmers while contributing to the creation of the virtual circle that I um, described uh, above. We should also take into account that um, taxpayers are often really going in the, in the wrong direction. I mean, currently when... Um, when a consumer is buying a product on the shelf of a supermarket, very often is paying for its product four times at the counter when of the supermarket with their uh, portion of taxes for a health uh, sanitary system, with their taxes to restore uh, the environment and uh, mitigate climate change. And finally, to the portion of their taxes going to the, for example, the common agricultural policy, which might reward farmers who are just instead uh, picking up the vicious circle of uh, having more and more industrial solution. So um, 
in this frame, we, we believe that the farm to fork uh, was a very interesting approach from the Commission. So in the context of the, um, of the Green Deal, the farm to fork set a very interesting sustainable uh, driven target. And we believe that this should be more and more reflected into uh, binding policy. And um, we understood that uh, what happened last week in the European Parliament in the Council for what regards the common agricultural policy was not going uh, exactly in this direction. But we still hope that the Commission will, uh, um, will put all their efforts in trying to mitigate uh, what was discussed in the Parliament and in the, um, in the Council. To go to, to an end to my introduction, I would like to say that uh, going to market and enlarging the market of sustainable products is a shared responsibility. We as organic sector since long time are organized together. Farmers, processor, traders, retailers, input provider, we discuss a lot together how we can uh, reduce the cost of input and reward uh, farmers for the contribution they, they, they give to uh, the societal challenges. But um, we believe that to support a market, uh, a better market for sustainable products, we need really different mechanisms. First, a mechanism that really uh, reinforces the strength of cooperating between uh, producer, processor, retailers, in, in order to, to have prices that remain stable and ensure a fair remuneration to the producer. Then we believe that we need um, a progress, progressive target in those policy who can really influence the market, such as, for example, procurement, public procurement. I mean, this can be a tool for policymakers to really support uh, a transition to a more sustainable agri-food system. And then we do believe that um, member states can use uh, taxation tools to support market. I mean, in the, um, in the Green Deal uh, communication, uh, Ursula von der Leyen has put as an example the possibility for member states to reduce VAT on organic products. I mean, we believe this is a, an interesting idea, as well as we believe that might be an interesting idea having taxation on those harmful substances that are used in agriculture. So that's, that's a bit my uh, introduction. I hope this can help to, uh, to enhance a better discussion with the other panelists. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, once again, a reminder to our audience that your expert speakers are ready to answer your questions, so do use the Q&A option to send your questions through. And now we will hear the opening thoughts of our final speaker, Baz Aruta from Rabobank. Baz, over to you. Well, thank you so much and thanks for having me. Uh, a really good discussion at the right moment in time, I would say. Uh, but let me open briefly because I think... Uh, uh, the dialogue with the, with the people listening uh, would be even more uh, valuable than just my introduction. I have four points to make that I would like to uh, introduce to you briefly and then have a little bit more in-depth insight. I think in order to be able to reward sustainability in the food system in the way it should be done in the long run, uh, it's truly important as a first item that we introduce true prices. So true prices means that the collective value of the services and the goods produced are reflected in what we need to pay when we go to the supermarket. I think in general, it is clear that that has not yet been the case. And as a result, people make different choices than what is logic and good. Secondly, if we think that that is the right approach, then it's also important that we as financial institutions uh, make sure that we integrate those types of true prices 
in our products and services. So the access to and the price of credit should be linked to the sustainability performance of our clients. Thirdly, I think it's truly important that we do not see this something as the market or the government or an individual player in the supply chain. It's a collective challenge to enhance sustainability in the food system. And as a result, it requires coalitions, if possible, wide coalitions to actually realize those goals. And fourthly, yes, there is a role to play by the government, both on a regional level, a national level, and also at EU and global levels. So that's an important thing to say, but it is definitely not the only one to play a role. Now on true pricing, I think it's important that the market has the basic power to steer the consumer preferences. Market prices define how we value goods. And the fact that negative external effects are not priced in uh, proves that our market is not yet perfect and we need to repair that. But it's complex, it involves influencing vested interests and therefore it requires time commitment of all players, not to say the least, it requires consensus on what external uh, effects are and how they should be weighed. So it's not easy. But economists will say that despite those hurdles, it's the most efficient way to influence consumer behavior without major public interference. And I think in the long run, in the way we've organized society, that is the road to go. And we think this is the most robust intervention. But a lot to be done. Now, secondly, on the role of the bank, because of course, you need to put your money where your mouth is if you make a statement like that. Um, I, we're a cooperative bank focusing on agriculture, and as a result, we are focusing on long-term client relationships. And that also requires that the challenges we face on climate, on biodiversity, on the health effects of food are definitely things that we need to take into consideration. Um, and that's why we've already 10 years ago started cooperating in a number of coalitions to actually introduce those types of measurement systems that help us to value those external effects, both positive and negative, in our service model. So to give you an example, we've worked with Royal Friesland Campina and the Worldwide Fund for Nature to introduce the biodiversity monitor for the dairy industry, which actually measures on farm level how they contribute to the biodiversity on their farm. Uh, that is, in a limited number of indicators, a very pragmatic way of measuring their performance. After finishing that, and that is now seen as a, a mainstream initiative to actually measure that performance uh, on farm level for dairy farmers, we have also started to introduce the same monitor development for crop row farming. And we hope to be able to also use that tool going forward in our client servicing. And thirdly, but very importantly, also already mentioned, when it comes to soil, uh, we have developed the Open Soil Index, which is actually an index in which we measure the soil quality of our clients from a physical perspective, from a chemical perspective, structure, but also uh, the biodiversity in the soil. And also that is a way of measuring sustainability performance. Now it's important to say um, that this is a way of actually identifying strengths and weaknesses in our client base where we hope to be able to promote 
the performance of our clients going upwards over time. And uh, it is clear that we want to integrate that also in our pricing schemes and in our risk management systems. So we feel that improving that performance needs to be a journey between the bank and the client together. And we've had very positive feedback on the pilots we're doing. We hope to be able to integrate that in all our client servicing throughout food and agriculture. Now, the third one I mentioned is coalitions. And I think it's a key thing that we not just look at government or at individual consumers or at farmers, but we need to combine efforts in order to realize results. And a good example, very practical, is what is called the Delta Plan for Biodiversity Recovery. That was an initiative here in the Netherlands in which farmers, but also nature conservation agencies, uh, the government, but only in a sounding board role, but not so much in controlling the initiative, the water management bodies, uh, they all work together to identify how we can actually work on making revitalizing the countryside uh, in the next decade to come. And we've been working on a number of topics from shared values to earning models, from laws and regulation to area specific solutions and on monitoring whether things actually go in the right direction. So that is definitely something where we see potential moving upwards if you combine a wide coalition where people work together. We see a lot of energy popping up and we even see voluntary coalitions to actually raise the minimum standards for dairy produced if we are able at the same time to safeguard that the right, the true price will be paid by the farm gate. So we see definitely that working together works out. And then of course, fourth and finally, a role for the government is definitely there to play. Um, it is on an EU level, it's on a national level, but for instance, also on a regional level where we see that with a very large uh, uh, intensity of people living in, in Europe in general, but of course, specifically also, for example, in the Netherlands, many, many of the issues we face on sustainability are also linked to spatial planning. We live with a lot of people in very small areas and the optimal setup of those areas, combining agriculture, nature conservation, but also where cities and villages are situated requires a collective effort. So we spend a lot of time with the government to identify how we can optimize the land being used and therefore minimize external effects while at the same time revitalize the countryside. So those would be my four things to look into in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now, you, you outlined a lot there uh, and we've got a lot of questions already coming in. But first, let's go to our Mentimeter results and see the result of that question. Who should pay for the implementation of greater sustainability in the food system? Once again, the answer is all of the above. I'm starting to wonder if maybe we shouldn't have given you that option because it's the easy answer. Um, but we see there a little bit more uh, for private sector and for consumers rather than public funding. Let me start, Ben, by just asking you, um, does that result surprise you or is it entirely expected? I think, as you say, it's the, it's the easy option. Um, certainly from our perspective, there's only ever uh, one group that pays and that's the consumer. Um, so <coughs> you're always uh, producing in the end, it's a business of producing uh, food products for consumers. Um, and 
you need to be able to make a living from what it is that they're prepared to pay. So it's absolutely vital that uh, the kind of price that you get uh, is a true price, a real market price, not one uh, which has been distorted or subsidised. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, I'll ask now that we go on to the next question for the Mentimeter, uh, for question for our audience, because we shouldn't just make all the panellists do the hard work, and that's what should mandatory labelling include? We'll come back in a few moments to see what your votes on that have been. As we can see, in real time, people are already going for both. Again, it's the easy option. But to turn now, let me come back. Um, Buzz, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, this question is who pays? And, you know, as a bank, how often are you asked this question? <laughs> very, very frequently. And I definitely think that in general, it is true that primary production is being paid by the consumer. And as a result, uh, that's the logic thing to look at when you want to improve stuff. But at the same time, we also see imperfections in the market. So there's a lot of uh, external effects that we currently don't uh, price in. And as a result, people tend to make choices that they would have done differently if they would have understood what the indirect effects are of their purchasing. So I definitely think that we can no longer see agriculture purely as a private thing happening on the countryside. We need to understand that agriculture has a very important positive role to play in actually living in a, in a place where it's worth living. And at the same time, there are currently negative external effects that we collectively need to minimize. And that cannot just be put uh, on the plate of the farmer. It needs to be uh, collectivized. So we need to, as a, as a society, also value that raising sustainability performance among primary production, which is the food of us all, re requires an investment by us all, either in uh, a monetary compensation or in raising the bar for everyone, so that there's a level playing field in which we all produce and consume sustainably. We need to do it together again. Eduardo, um, I'm sure you'll agree with most of what you've heard already, um, but let me ask you a little bit of a question more about, if you like, speed. So consumers really change their behavior very, very slowly. We already know that governments and policy happens at really a, a really glacial speed as well. Does that mean that food companies are the only hope to force a real change towards sustainable mass consumption in this short or medium term? Let's start from the, from the fact that uh, sustainability cannot be achieved uh, one day from one day to another. So it takes time to, to work on uh, sustainability and make uh, an agricultural food system sustainable. And uh, all the different components of the supply chain uh, needs this time. I mean, farmers need time to convert their farm, for example, to an organic uh, management system. And so on does the industry and uh, the retailing. So um, speed is indeed important. But it's also important to, to take the right speed to convert properly to a more sustainable food system. So what, what we need to do, as I said before, is really to look uh, at this transition with an holistic approach to see how policy can support from one side 
the agri-food chain to make the transition happening, but also how can they support the market of those products in the first place? So we should really uh, speed up in this uh, in these regards, making policy that uh, help the market to develop. And then we need to work um, on consumers' behavior, and we need to work on education to consumer. We need to explain them why this transition is important and why it's important that uh, they choose uh, sustainability uh, in um, let's say in, instead of uh, cheap prices. Let me say that we, uh, as organic sector, when when we look at prices, our farmers are the ones who are having the best margins compared to uh, conventional farmers. But we do believe that this is not enough. We do believe that we need um, fair prices for all the farmers. And at the moment, the food that we uh, sell at Farmgate is too cheap, is way too cheap. And consumers really do not understand that what they are saving in money, they are paying elsewhere. So I mentioned before uh, some example of how this is paid, but um, we, we, we need to communicate. I mean, explaining to consumer the true cost of food, what Bud said before, is not an easy task, but the sun is that we need to start doing, and this requires really all the actors working together and making sure that there is uh, a good communication among the supply chain and then towards the consumers. Thank you, Bas. I mean, uh, sorry, and, and Eduardo, Ben, the same question to you then uh, regarding this speed. Are companies the way to force things to happen given that consumers and policy changes happen very slowly? Well, I mean, first of all, change can only happen as, as fast as it's technically possible, okay? So uh, that means that you need to have the science uh, behind you in order to modify your behaviours. Uh, secondly, um, the rate at which people will change their behaviours is dependent upon their incentives to change. So when you, uh, when you blunt those signals, uh, when you spread costs across a society, instead of putting it on the people uh, who should bear those costs, uh, then you reduce the rate of change. Um, so, and then I guess the third thing is really that producers, farmers will produce to what consumers want. And so, to a large extent, the main driver of change is always going to be the consumer, because I believe they're the ones that have the strongest lever uh, to be able to impact on what people produce and how they produce it. Bas, I want to turn to you with a question uh, specifically related to uh, the different regions of Europe. Now, they have a far greater level of intensity in certain sectors than in others. So how do we prevent a protective instinct on the part of individual member states or, or countries while you know they're sensitive to the demands of voters? That's the reality of the world we live in. So how can the real food chain be supported with political support? That's not an easy question, and I totally understand the way the uh, common agricultural policy is moving uh, towards more autonomy also in uh, uh, dividing the subsidies, because I do think that I'm trained as an ecologist, there are differences uh, within Europe when it comes to uh, the countryside and uh, factors for production. At the same time, I think it's important that we do not uh, accept blindly the fact that uh, farm subsidies have been used in many, many different ways throughout the countries uh, within the European Union, and they need to 
focus on the results that are agreed upon at EU level. So I'm totally in, in favor of uh, different measures and different subsidy schemes in different member states, as long as they strive uh, for the same goal. And when I look at uh, what's currently going on in the dialogue around uh, the common agricultural policy and uh, the, the friction with the farm to fork strategy, uh, that I fear that um, in some member states, this is seen as an urgent thing uh, to look into. And as a result, the money should be used to uh, create incentives to do the right thing. But in other markets, I think uh, the, the, the subsidies are still uh, potentially used in a way that do not optimally move uh, our production system in the right direction. So I think if at an EU level, we want to have the same movement going on, uh, it needs to be uh, used and uh, applied in a similar way throughout the EU in order to, uh, to maintain a level playing field. Because a level playing field and true pricing are preconditions uh, for consumer behavior uh, shifting in the right direction. Eduardo, the same question to you. What are your thoughts on the political situation and, and political support? Sorry, I needed to unmute. Uh, as I said, uh, I was a bit concerned looking at the results that uh, were discussed, for example, about the common agricultural policy last week. We could see that uh, both the European Parliament and the Council um, did not really support uh, this, um, this transition to a more sustainable food system. And this, is a, uh, this is a concern if we really want to um, uh, to, to achieve a more sustainable uh, approach, we need uh, all the different parties working together. And as I said, I think there is a very important role also for uh, local um, policy, for regional policy and uh, for um, really local authorities. So we, we need to bring all of them together. We, we hope that um, the, the indication given by the European Commission with the Green Deal can really be uptaken uh, at the, all the different levels. We need. Uh, politicians move fast to understand what uh, the citizens are asking for and take action. As I, and as I said, should not be underestimated the role of local government uh, at um, city and regional level. They can also play a major role when it goes to um, deployment of local food policy and when it goes to procurement of food, which represent a very important uh, market that can be shaped by uh, policymakers. I want to turn uh, now to you, uh, Ben, with a question that has come in uh, from the audience, from Konstantin Golenbeck from Fertilizers Europe, in fact, to get the New Zealand perspective. And he's asking what benefits does New Zealand see in focusing on the regulation of nutrient losses instead of limiting the use of fertilizers? Uh, do you want to tackle that question? Sure, no problem. Um, I think the important thing about, uh, about the whole of our Resource Management Act and approach to externalities, which I guess is what we've been talking about, is uh, that it's those impacts on the environment which we're trying to avoid. Now, that can be achieved in a lot of ways, and sometimes it's best not to have uh, politicians and bureaucrats decide exactly how that should be done, but to rather let the professional land managers make decisions uh, which they believe are going to be most effective within their local environment to achieve the outcomes that have been set for them by society, by their community. 
So that then allows um, our farmers or land users to take into account all the factors involved in what causes nutrients to go into waterways, the, the climate, the soil type, uh, the types of livestock that are being operated, the crops, the application technique, techniques, and all those things in a way where they try to optimise the management of that whilst looking to ensure the outcome, knowing that if they fail to achieve the outcome, they're going to be held responsible and that's going to be a cost to them. It's playing out there as we're seeing here in the EU. Um, I want now to look at the results of our Mentimeter poll, the last one that we had asked there. Of course, everybody went for the easy answer once again, um, with very little difference between nutritional scoring only and environmental performance only. Um, Bas, reflect on that. Which would you have voted for if I'd taken both off the table? To be honest, I would have said the same to be. I, I also voted for, uh, for both. Uh, I think the essence of, of food is the fact that we all rely on it to be healthy. And um, we also appreciate food as a, as a very important part of our culture. And you need to be well informed to make decisions. Uh, at the same time, I think what is lacking uh, significantly currently is that there's no consensus on the externalities I described when it comes to uh, the, the real price of food. So we have not yet been able, and to be honest, we are looking into it jointly also with a number of people from the science side to actually identify how we can uh, value externalities in order to be able to come to a true price. Because I think consumers in, 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 in an optimal system can make informed choices and on the basis of that, help steer the system into the right direction. Uh, and for, in order to be able to do so, you need information on both uh, elements. So it's definitely not one of the two. Uh, I think, to be honest, both are not as good developed as many of the financial indicators, including price uh, uh, at the cashier are when you're in the supermarket. So we need to enhance the quality of both, and we need to have more detailed information available for consumers uh, all over the world, including Europe, unfortunately. Thank you. I'm going to take another question uh, from an audience member, as it was it's very close to one I was going to ask myself anyway, which is from René Nutborn from Farmout Europe. And the question is, how big or an important a role do you see of supermarkets playing in the sustainability discussion? So, I mean, retail obviously plays a huge role, but they will bear the brunt of displeasure of consumers uh, when it comes to prices um, what is the role, anyway, Eduardo, for retailers in general um, in, in delivering on sustainability? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's again, it's the easy answer, but retailers should be uh, working together with all the other actors. They play a very important role because they are, uh, they are in contact directly with the, with the consumer, so they can really uh, make the difference. And um, I, I was discussing with our retailers last um, uh, last week, uh, you know, the briefing about this uh, this new situation of uh, COVID-19, and we um, shared uh, that in overall Europe, uh, for example, organic products have raised uh, their sales in uh, in uh, in supermarket, and many of them have tried to um, to make them more available for consumers. So many consumers have decided to uh, pay a little bit more for organic and spend a little bit on less to have. 
a, a more sustainable food. So I, I think uh, really retailers can play an important role because they can help us in explaining to consumers how the price of a product is built on. I mean, what Basi said on uh, externality and true cost is a really important issue. And it's not easy to explain to people how we can, uh, how really the price should be built to make, um, to make it accessible to consumers. So we, we should work more and more with retailers to make this is possible. And then let me say, I don't want to get into the details of this labeling about uh, nutrition or environment, the, the two options you put on the table. But I think what we should really do is to have, um, to incentivize cons consumption of healthy food by reducing the price for the consumers and by re-equilibrating the price along the supply chain. Ben, the same question to you regarding the role of retailers. How important are they in driving chain? Uh, well, I think they're very important in the sense that they uh, very often act as a proxy for consumers and a gatekeeper, right? And that uh, consumers, to some extent, uh, rely on the retailers to ensure that appropriate standards are being applied to the products that the consumers are looking to buy, whether it be animal welfare or uh, sustainable on-farm production or whatever. Uh, and that's tied up, I think, also in the supermarket brands. Uh, it's an opportunity for them uh, to present to their consumers the sorts of things that they say they're going to look after for the consumer. Uh, and I think that is a really useful tool. Well, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question before I come on to Bas um, on that one, uh, because it has come in from an audience member, from Tom Murphy, from the Professional Agricultural Contractors of Ireland. He asks, Ben, with no food subsidies in New Zealand, is this reflected in a much higher cost of living? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, that was uh, a very succinct answer. Um, Bas, will you be quite as succinct when I ask you to explain from your perspective the role of retailers and perhaps reflect on the cost of living question as well? <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's great that we have food that doesn't take uh, 60 or 70% of, uh, of our income. But at the same time, I think food at the moment is too cheap. I happen to live in the country where the the percentage spent of your income on food is least in the world. And I do definitely think that we look at the negative externalities of it. Uh, so that's just a, just a side remark. When it comes to retail, I think there are two things that are really important to, to, to see. First of all, because of the fact that uh, the average consumer is relying so strongly on retailers uh, in their day-to-day -day choices, uh, this also comes with responsibility for those retailers to actually live up to those expectations and to uh, take that responsibility uh, not too lightly. And I see increasingly that they are picking that up. I mean, I need to say that a number of the choices to be made within the supermarket uh, today are much better informed than they used to be uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, at the same time, I see that uh, while COVID was, uh, was emerging, uh, we saw a very strong trend towards uh, local food. Uh, many people saw that uh, the long supply chains we rely on today, without too much of a knowledge uh, of the individual consumer, whether that is actually going on, um, they were breaking. Uh, and uh, we've been able to repair most of them in the Western world, but many of the supply chains uh, in the South are still broken. And I think we also need to rebalance how we value 
the length of those supply chains. And I think if you know the farmer whose food you eat, if you understand the way your milk is produced and that the cow is involved, then you are also much easier um, able and willing uh, to pay the real price that actually safeguards the proper environment you want to live in, the healthy food you want to eat, but also you respect the fact that you need to pay the farmer to produce it in a proper way. So I really think that retailers have a role to play in making people aware how their uh, food was being produced and the impact that the production way, uh, the way it was produced uh, has on the, uh, uh, the day-to-day environment you would like to, uh, to work in, live in, recreate in during the weekend. And that's a really important role for retail. I see it moving in the right direction, but there's definitely more uh, needed in order to, uh, to have a more visible impact of those retailers on those types of dilemmas for consumers. Thank you. Now, um, we're getting uh, quite a lot of questions in, particularly now on the question of true prices. Keep your questions coming. Do send them in using the Q&A function on your screen. Uh, this one, it's directed at Bas, but I think I'm going to ask Eduardo to answer it as well. It's from Ramon Christopher Manero from Green Horizon Organics. And he's asking on introducing true prices, how much, for example, in percentage terms, would be our ideal maximum markup cost on organic produce? Eduardo, perhaps you could take that first and then I'll come back to Bas as well with the same question. Yeah, maybe I can give an example because we made a study with a, with a Dutch company actually on the true cost of food. And um, among others, we, uh, we looked at the external cost for um, pest and disease control on one hectare of potatoes. So only if we look only at the pollution that this uh, uh, pest and disease control had as a cost for the society, the cost was about 1,300 euros per hectare. And we compare this with the cost of uh, um, what would be pest and control disease for organic and the cost was 40 cents. So we have a difference of 1,300 euro on an hectare of potatoes. And this 1,300 euro has been charged to society. So uh, I think the question was how much markup we can give to organic products, but uh, the question could be reversed how we can incentivize um, you know, farmers to, to produce organically and then avoid this cost for society. But uh, let me say that um, the true cost of food is quite a, a, a big science at the moment. And we are really trying to, to understand how this can be reflected on the price, uh, on the final price of production for consumers. But we find very interesting to see how this could be applied on subsidies, for example, and really create a new market for uh, public goods for farmers. So the idea is that we might have a kind of new business model for farmers who are willing to, um, to farm in a different way, reduce the cost for society, and so be rewarded by policies for the, um, for the job they are doing. Uh, this could be a very interesting approach that I hope um, the Commission can follow also in the application, for example, of the eco schemes that now has been um, delegated to them to come up with, uh, with some proposal. And I see uh, Tassos is with us today. Maybe, maybe we'll mention something about that, hopefully, later on. Thank you. Thank you, Eduardo. Abbas, the same question to you then uh, that was sent in. What would be the ideal markup maximum price on organic produce? Well, let me first of all say that I think it's, it's a good question, but it's, it's very narrow. 
Um, and what I mean by very narrow is the fact that it only looks at the way it's produced. But let me first of all give you a brief statement that the same organic product from the Netherlands, uh, sold in the Netherlands, has a totally different footprint than if it was a, an organic uh, kiwi from New Zealand, uh, or if it's in the season, or after nine months of in a in a storehouse with uh, with cooling, uh, way, waiting to be sold in the in the store. So it's about seasonality. It's about the, the length of travel. Uh, it's about uh, whether it's uh, uh, plant-based or animal-based. So it are a number of different indicators that identify the footprint of a product. But in general, I would say, it's important that we provide the opportunity for uh, uh, sustainably produced food to get scale. Because I think a significant proportion of the uh, the added price, for instance, for organic, but that goes for more, uh, what is currently a limited percentage uh, of market share, is the inefficiency of the, as a result of the scale, the inefficiency of the, of the delivery. So uh, if we would be able to actually take out that disadvantage, then I think the, um, the extra price that needs to be paid as a result is very limited. And it, I mean, people are really able and willing to pay for a few uh, percent extra price uh, if that is required. But it goes for an incentive on the one side for the, uh, for the uh, sustainably produced uh, food on the one side, but it also goes for paying for uh, greenhouse gases emitted during the production cycle. And that is not a organic or conventional uh, dilemma. Uh, it's, it's a different dilemma. So, let us in, in general say we need to have significant uh, pricing of externalities in order to move in the right direction. There is a number of different uh, uh, parameters that define the different price from today's price. Uh, and as a result, uh, we simply need to be willing to pay the true price after consensus on what that is, and then see a big difference in supermarket pricing uh, going forward but not just on the production side, but for instance, also on the, the due date of uh, products on the shelf. I mean, there's an, a lot of innovation going on when it comes to pricing just before the due date, because we simply throw away too much food that is still uh, possible to eat, uh, simply because we don't have the uh, smart systems to actually do uh, dynamic pricing uh, just before the runoff date. And there's a lot of, uh, technology and innovation uh, taking place also in the retail chains to actually make that happen in order to improve that situation. So, Ben, I want to put another question that is, it's, it's also about true prices, but it's from a slightly different perspective that has come in from Pierre-Olivier Dreg, who is the ELO president. He wants to know how you deal with imported products from third countries where sustainable production is not a central issue because of the impact they will have on prices. Okay, I mean, uh, in New Zealand, in terms of what we import from, from other places, um, in general, we, we operate a very low tariff or zero tariff structure. So, um, so there's no tax, really, as such, on products that come in from, from outside. Um, and then it becomes a, a question for consumers to decide as to whether or not uh, they 
what sort of price they want to pay for products, perhaps from uh, different origins, bearing in mind that origin is not necessarily always a good indicator of quality or sustainable production or anything of that sort, but consumers being consumers will, will make their decisions. Okay, I want to, uh, another question has come in and it's for the whole panel and it's how could you encourage local farmers to interact with government to engage more on food sustainability? Um, Bas, uh, your thoughts on that briefly because I want to come on to a question for all of the panel to wrap up which I'm going to ask you for concrete ideas on. So just give me your, your brief thoughts uh, in response to that question. Uh, I'll be short. I think uh, farmers can do better in uh, uh, influencing uh, policymakers. Uh, farmers uh, very often tend to focus on their farm, which is their passion. Uh, but at the same time, I think as a result, uh, it would be good if there would be more a more intensive dialogue between the farming community and voters and government in order to link the sustainability agenda to their day-to-day -day worries on farm in order to live up to those uh, expectations. Uh, so I think a more intensive dialogue would be welcome. And I also at the same time would hope that people who represent the consumer would stimulate the government to raise the awareness by the average consumer to actually understand what farmers are doing, how they produce their food, and how a true price and the right price and a good price for food is actually beneficial to us all. Okay, then as a wrap-up question I'm going to ask uh, for the whole panel is, what examples can you give me about new business models or transformative business models that could really answer some of these questions here today? What have you seen from best practice that you think should be brought forward? Eduardo, let you go first. Yes, as I said, we, we need to, to think uh, very holistically and we need to create new business model to make the transition happening. I mean, organic per se is a best practice. It's, um, we, we started without a market, without a, a regulation that was uh, helping us uh, to, to start. And then the regulation helped us to have a common play field and we gained our market step by step. And the key was really working together, making the farmers working with the processing industry, with the traders, with the retailers. By discussing all together, we, we could come up with a, with a model that is, uh, is trying to change uh, the dynamics on the, on the agri-food sector. So I would say the, the organic model can be one that we can look at, that, uh, at it when it's about uh, building up a new business model for a sustainable agri-food system. Ben, what examples have you seen uh, in terms of really concrete best practice in sorting out who pays for this? Where do, where do we, you know, is innovation the solution uh, in, in creating more money that can go into paying for a sustainable uh, future for everyone? Well, I think very much innovation is the key, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it costs more to be sustainable. Um, I think sustainability is as much about um, uh, being efficient with your resources and that sometimes means that being sustainable actually saves you money. So uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's the question. Um, and then as far as new business models are concerned, yes, of course, people can select um, to promote their products on the basis of their sustainability and tell their story accordingly. 
but I don't think that solves the, the sustainability problem if that's you know what we're thinking that there is a sustainability problem because that requires everybody to be moving towards something that's more sustainable so I'm not entirely convinced that the business models themselves are broken I think it's a lot to do with alignment of incentives um, it's about governments setting some clear policies and frameworks and uh, yeah, providing the incentives for producers to become more sustainable uh, and to provide that to consumers. Bas, your thoughts, do you agree that it's all about uh, incentives or are there new business models or transformative business models and new approaches or best practices concretely that you could point to that would ensure change? I spent a lot of time uh, in our biodiversity monitor that we uh, that we built jointly with Royal Fries and Campina and uh, WWF. And what I saw there is that the first dialogue between the NGO and the production company is very tough. And once you start understanding each other better, you can actually find common ground and you can uh, find ways to get a model that can work for all parties involved. And the same goes for what Eduardo just said. I think there are a number of elements in the organic uh, way of produ producing where mainstream players can learn a lot from. I think at the same time that the organic sector can learn some of the, uh, the lessons that are learned by the, the conventional sector, for instance, when it comes to efficiency or those types of things. So we should learn more from each other. And if we are able to make that connection also to the consumer, then I'm realistically and hopeful that they are willing to pay slightly more. And if and when we feel that that is not moving uh, fast enough, I think there is no problem to lift the minimum standard while at the same time uh, uh, create a, a race to the top in order to, uh, to, to stimulate innovation. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that will work as soon as the consumer becomes more aware of the impact of its daily shopping. Thank you very much, Bas. I think that's all the time we have for on this panel. So thank you very much once again uh, to Ben, to Bas and to Eduardo for taking all those questions from our audience. On behalf of the FFA, we would like to thank all our speakers as well as our moderator, Jennifer Baker, for making the day a success. We would like to also thank the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, the Nature Conservancy, Cargill, World Wildlife Fund Europe, Rabobank and Thought for Food, as well as our international partner, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs.